0: Now we know where Labour plans to go with the economy and indeed what its pitch to us, the electors, is likely to be. There's going to be no tax increases, no wealth taxes, none of the redistributive policies which are normally associated with the left. No, we're going to pay for all the obvious requirements on public services, the dire state of the health service, the perhaps even dire state of social care and all the rest of it. We're going to pay for that because we're going to have economic growth. Indeed, the Shadow Chancellor believes that it's possible to promise the highest level of economic growth by the end of the next parliament in the whole of the G7. Now, either the other G7 members, all of them, have to do badly or Labour's economic policies have to be spectacularly successful. Now, there's nothing wrong with the idea that as an economy grows, there's more money available for public services. See, that's what's been going on since the Second World War. The question is, is the policy, or rather the policies are supposed to deliver this highest rate of growth in the G7, are they coherent? Do they add up? Or are there major gaps to be filled? And here, there are basically two questions. The first question is, where's all this economic growth going to come from? And the second question is, where's the money going to come from to underpin the investment to deliver that economic growth. Well, when it comes to the future economic growth, Labour is basically betting on a couple of things. First of all, they're going to build lots of houses. Well, you know, every government since the Second World War has been in the business of building lots of houses. 1950s, we used to build 300,000 houses a year. Now, we aspire to that, but it's proved pretty difficult. So, are the houses going to get built? Well, Labour has a number of suggestions or proposals or policies as to how to make all this happen. And the leading one appears to be, let people build on the green belt. Now, it's not as if we have a sort of open and unpopulated country. We are one of the most highly densely populated countries in the world. And the green belts are in precisely the areas where population pressures and intensity of occupation is highest. They're there to be the lungs of the cities, and they are not well Looked after, they're not very green. But the alternative policy Labour could have had is to make Green Belt actually green while focusing housing inside the Green Belts and in particular in urban areas. But the builders love Greenfield. It's easy, it's accessible, and people pay top pounds for the houses that then get constructed. People don't want lots and lots of houses around them. They want nice, shiny executive houses, and they want them in green countryside. And the trouble with all that is that that's not what Labour's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about opening up the housing ladder to lots of others. And, of course, the building industry has to get going, and we're in an inflection point from a world of 30 years of extremely low interest rates, indeed negative real interest rates, We're now back to 5% plus, and that means that the affordability of houses is going to be tough. That means house prices are under pressure, and that means the builders and their land banks, etc., are not worth what they thought they were. I suspect that the next five years or 10 years in the housing market is going to be very difficult than the one that we've had for the last 25 years. But that's housing, bricks and mortar. The other component of Labour's growth plan is that it's going to have a shiny net zero economy. It's going to build loads of stuff to support the new energy systems and transport systems and heating systems of the future. And it's so ambitious about this that it's going to try to get to net zero for the power sector by a 230 In other words, it's going to take where we are now and get to that complete decarbonisation of the power sector in six years. Well, as they say, pigs might fly, and these pigs might fly, but it's extremely unlikely. Indeed, it's worse than that. By going flat out to achieve a, frankly, pretty silly target, the result will probably be higher costs and uh, more dislocation than otherwise would have happened. 235, the Conservatives' target, is very ambitious, and it probably won't be met either, but 230 is, frankly, almost ridiculous. And what's more, Labour tells us, or rather, let's be clear, Ed Miliband tells us, that this is all going to be fantastically cheap. We're going to have lower electricity prices, the same kind of nonsense that Grant Shapps talks, as a result of these cheaper forms of electricity generation. Well, good luck with that. There's not much evidence to support that proposition, and the proposition itself is based on a combination of wishful thinking and taking an extremely narrow view of what determines the cost. What I think is much more generally being recognised... What the Windsor report on transmission, for example, highlights is that going from a fossil fuel system to a net zero energy system is a system problem. It's not enough to have a low cost offshore wind farm or onshore, although, by the way, the costs are now rising, the supply chains are stretched, etc., etc. You have to have the entire transmission system you have to have the backup for intermittency low density intermittent geographically dispersed energy sources are a whole new ballpark and there's nothing wrong with that we're going to go that way almost certainly but getting from here to there is not cheap and of course all the materials have to be available and they're not You can wait four years for a transformer, for a transmission system, and that's after you've got planning permission. Sure, you could halve the planning permission and industrialize the countryside, and as they say, good luck with that too, uh, but you still face four years plus seven is 11, which I think is nearly twice the timetable that Ed Miliband's got to get to 2.30. This isn't sensible, this is gonna be expensive, And if Labour thinks that this is the route to free up resources to spend on public services and therefore not have tax rises, they are, I think, playing a quite dangerous game. And then there's all the gigafactories that are going to be built. All those battery factories, all those electric car industry factories, and presumably all the other factories to make the cables, to refine the minerals and dig the minerals up. All the other stuff that's required. Well... The trouble with that is that that's going to cost a lot of money, and that brings us to our second question with the labor policies: Where exactly is the money coming from? Labour, and indeed, many people across the spectrum seem to think that there's a wall of money out there to be invested. It's all going to be environmentally sustainable, it's all ESG, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's just a question of unleashing this financial flow of monies. It's about removing barriers. It's all going to flood in if only the government does, uh, in this case a future Labour government does, uh, the things to encourage it. Well, there's a problem with that. There always is. Actually, it's in two parts. The first bit is that we don't do savings in the UK, Governments are dissavers, industry doesn't reinvest, retained earnings, and we the consumers love living beyond our meat. So we've got to get the money from foreigners. And those foreigners looking at the UK have got some pretty big issues that they need to get addressed before they put the money here, rather than the United States, in the European uh, Union, or indeed elsewhere around the world. Little England, the UK after Brexit, is not some kind of big player on the world stage that we all, I think, imagine in this vision of a post-Brexit Britain leading the world, et cetera, et cetera. No, we're a bit part player. And what's more, we're a pretty risky bit part player after Brexit. The currency is vulnerable. The current account, the balance of payments is in a dreadful state. And we're turning not just... To import the capital, but import more and more of the stuff that will be needed for this energy transition that Labour plans going ahead. Now it's doable, but you have to recognise that the only point of finance is to find funding for the payment of the interest, the payment of the dividends, and the repayment of capital. Without funding, There is no case for finance. And that's a problem which Ed Miliband, in particular, doesn't seem willing to answer. Who's going to pay the interest, the dividends and the capital back? Is it going to be taxpayers or is it going to be consumers? And how's that all going to marry up with affordability? You can pretend that these challenges don't exist... You can assume them away by assuming that all the net zero stuffs can be cheap. But then, you know, if it's also cheap, why isn't it happening already? And why do we need any government policies if it's all going to be, as they say, in the market? So we'll need to attract that money. And not only will we need to attract that money, we're going to have to pay a much higher cost of capital than we paid in the past. Again, something which doesn't appear to enter into Ed Miliband's calculations. You know, the interest rate's five. It's not naught. The equity premium has gone up. World financial markets are not in a good state. China is not growing as it was expected to. The great asset adjustment... Putting valuations onto a different plane because the cost of capital is based on an interest rate of five and above is quite a different story to one where effectively debt was free because the real interest rate was negative. And all that private equity money, infrastructure fund money, all that easy capital searching for anywhere to go in a world where yields were very small. It's not the world we're in now. We're in a very different place. So if Labour want to base higher public expenditure on health, social care, a whole host of other things, and if it wants the private sector to finance all these growth-causing projects that it bases its assumptions upon, then it has to tell a really unpalatable and inconvenient truth to the electors. It's going to cost you. You're going to pay higher energy bills. You're probably going to pay higher water bills and higher bills for all the other investment that lies behind this growth plan. And if you don't, taxpayers are going to have to pay more and then taxes will have to go up. And that's unpalatable, but it's a true reflection of A, our desire to live way beyond our means, to consume as if COVID and financial crises never happened, and B, to not use the tax levers to handle expenditure or cut the expenditure. In other words, our desire for ourselves to spend more and more, and our desire for governments not to tax us more, in the end, doesn't add up. And after a Labour growth experience, all this is supposed to deliver the goods within five years, remember, within the Parliament, the fastest growing GDP amongst the G7. All of that is potentially going to become part and parcel of a more fundamental rethink about the role of the state and the size of taxation and the size of public expenditure within our economy. And in the end, all of this adds up to a simple proposition. Someone at some stage is going to have to confront the British public with the reality that it has to live within its means, that it has to be a sustainable economy based upon sustainable consumption and sustainable investment. Right now, it's pretty clear it isn't sustainable. Therefore, it will not be sustained. Thank you.